But one by one, all of those calls just dwindled away and I just... Thankfully. <laughs> and in the meantime, I kept getting calls from this school board chairman way up north. Well, finally around May, the first time he called me had been in, in um, December, finally around May, I decided, you know, God talks to us in really good ways. I decided that clearly he was calling me to go to this little tiny school way up north where I had never been before. And you know, as soon as I recognized God calling me to do that, I was excited about it. Why, I was going to the mission field and I was dedicating my life to, to singlehood to be in the mission field. Well, I got up there and started teaching school, and it was a grand challenge, as you can imagine, you know, a one-room school and everything. And it was so cool because, man, I hadn't been teaching school for maybe a month and a half, and this is who I met. And we, we, um, we were soulmates right away. It was just... It's just wonderful. Well, we got married. That was in, we met in October, and we got married the following July. And in the meantime, before we got married, we had gotten a call to go teach school in Ontario, California. And actually, the Lances, uh, Harold Lance was on the school board there. And um, we took the call, thinking that it would be a good opportunity for him to continue his studies in agriculture at Cal Poly Pomona. And so we, we took, we got married and packed up our stuff and moved to Southern California. We had never, um, either of us, lived in big cities really before. And so this was a pretty big change for us. And started teaching school, really liked it. The school had a work-study program, and so it was really, really wonderful. And before we got married, we hadn't talked a lot a little bit, but not a lot about having children. But there was one thing we were on the same page about, and that was that we really weren't in a hurry. We figured, you know, a couple years at least before we had kids. Did you say two, or was that four or five? Well, I was thinking two. You were probably thinking four or five. Well, we would start dry. We lived in Fontana. School was in Ontario, and then his college was in Pomona. So we would drive in the morning from, from Fontana, to Ontario, and around about, I would say late October, I got hit with the baby no, no, bug. It wasn't until December. Okay, okay, maybe, yeah. Anyways, December. I got hit with the baby bug so bad. And so from, from then on, every morning, we would be driving down the freeway to school, and I'd be saying, sweetheart, please, just one little baby, please, just a little wee one. That's all I want. Well, Finally, in January, he said he gave in. And so he said, one month. I'll give you one month to see if it works. And it did. <laughs> and four kids later, I'm so glad he gave in. Well, when, when we got pregnant, I was, I, it was just, you have no, I mean, well, I guess you do. It's so exciting. And along with the excitement, suddenly I was struck. We both, we were so struck with this incredible responsibility. I mean, we were going to be bringing a new life into the world. And so we started reading Child Guidance more. You know, of course, I had read it before, but really started reading it because we wanted to be responsible parents. From my standpoint, um, there's a lot I can say about that. 
but uh, I'll, I'll just say, once, once she actually conceived and was pregnant, I was so excited. Until waiting until we could get the um, confirmation that uh, she actually was pregnant was the longest three weeks of my life. It was just amazing. And, um, you know, I was one of these kind of guys that as I was growing up as a teenager and so on, you would see some lady bring a new baby to church and all the other women would gather around and they'd say, oh, isn't, she, isn't he or she so cute? Isn't it a darling little baby? And I would look at them and I'd say, the only reason they're saying that is because they're wanting to be polite. Those newborn babies, in my opinion, are the ugliest things. And um, about the time that we got close to having our own baby, our last checkup, actually, we went to the hospital there in BC. And um, after we were done visiting with the, the doctor, I decided that we should swing by the nursery. And uh, I, I felt that I should see how bad it was going to look when I actually got one of these things. So we, we got down to the nursery and I looked through the window and there were probably three or four babies in the, in the nursery then. And I looked at them and I said, I would take any of those. Those are the darlingest little things. Well, when Jana was born, September 24, she was blue, blue, blue. She had had a very, very difficult delivery. And um, she was covered with this cottage cheesy kind of stuff. And uh, she was bloody. And I took one look at her and said, that's the most beautiful baby I've ever seen. Now, I don't know what happened. But anyway, it, it just, some of these things just kind of mess with your mind. That's all I can say. Anyway, I carried this little baby up and down the halls of the hospital the whole time I was there. The nurses started telling me that, that I needed to leave her alone. After we took her home, she was... Um, with me, I'd take her to work, just a little tiny baby in her little bag. Every chance I got, and I would get up in the morning and have my personal devotions in her bedroom. And you know, I know that it talks about a mother's love, but I can tell you, God represents himself not as a mother, but as a father. The love of a father for his children is, is something that I don't think very many people really acknowledge because men tend to be more reserved with their emotions. But a father's love runs very deep. And um, I remember one morning when I was having my devotions, I looked over the edge of the crib at this little baby, still only probably a few months old, and I was just admiring her and looking at her and I said, you know, one of these days you're going to be six years old and you're going to go to school. And then I burst out laughing at the absolute absurdity of that little thing ever being six years old. And uh, now she's 23, almost 24. It happens. About the time Jana was born, 
we moved and I took a job starting and operating a vegetable greenhouse in northern British Columbia. And over the years, working with plants, farming, I began to notice that in the Bible there's an awful lot of references to reaping, sowing, seed planting, harvest fruits. You know, we, we, you probably don't notice it until you actually become a farmer and then you start seeing how much it's actually in the Bible. In Christ Object Lessons, page 33, verse, uh, paragraph 1, it says, By the parable of the sower, Christ illustrates the things of the kingdom of heaven and the work of the great husbandman, farmer, for his people. Like the sower in the field, he came to scatter the heavenly grain of truth. And then it says, Because of its simplicity, the parable of the sower has not been valued as it should be. From the natural seed cast into the soil, Christ desires to lead our minds to the gospel seed, the sowing of which results in bringing man back to his loyalty to God. He who gave the parable of the tiny seed is the sovereign of the heavens, and the same laws that govern earthly seed sowing govern the sowing of the seeds of truth. When you actually think about that, that one sentence, the last one that she read, is profound. Think about it. The same laws that govern earthly seed sowing govern the sowing of the seeds of truth. That means if you want to know how to have a better, more productive, and dynamic spiritual life, where can you go to look? Earthly seed sowing. In other words, if you look at how you deal with seeds and how you grow plants, what you learn there is exactly the same laws that you will find governing your own spiritual life. That is something that I don't think very many people, and I'm speaking about myself, appreciate. Now, what does that have to do with families? I believe that the same principles, obviously, to be successful as a parent, to be successful as a husband and wife, the core of that is your own spiritual life because God is love and if we take his spiritual principles into our life, there will be love and there will be success. This morning I would like to focus on three simple, profound truths. Just three. If we understand these three points and practice them, you will be successful as a parent guaranteed. I know that a lot of people think of parenting as a, a um, complicated procedure, and I think parenting is a lot more simple than we give it credit for. 
Bible says, be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. In the uh, book of John, chapter 15, Jesus is just getting ready, just getting ready to be crucified to end his, his uh, earthly ministry, and he's talking to the disciples, and he has this verse, this statement that he makes, John chapter 15 and verse 1, where he he says, I am the vine, what comes next? My father is the gardener. Now, I've heard that my whole life, and it was only recently that it suddenly occurred to me, you know what Jesus is saying? Jesus was the son of God. In this verse, Jesus is actually stating the relationship between a father and a son is best described as the relationship between a gardener and a plant. So if that's the case, then my children are plants, and I'm the gardener. In Psalm 128, verse 3, it says, Your sons will be like olive shoots around your table. There's so many neat verses like this. In Psalms 144, verse 12, it says, Then our sons in their youth will be like a well-nurtured plant. In Isaiah 58, verse 11, it says, You will be like a well-watered garden. So the first principle for successful parenting, and, and I think the same thing is true for, for uh, husband-wife relationships, is you have to see your children as gardens. Now, if, if we take that, that idea, our children are gardens, how many here have ever raised a garden? Well, it's quite a few. When you think of planting your garden, what do you actually think of? Do you go down and say, I want to find some long skinny seeds and I want to find some round, perfectly polished black seeds and I'd like to get some oval shaped seeds, some pointy ones, some really gnarly looking seeds. Is that what you think of when you think of gardening? I have never ever met a gardener and I've never seen a seed catalog that ever showed pictures of seeds. People don't care about the seeds. When they think of a garden, they immediately start planning what they want to harvest from their garden. I want some corn. And when they say corn, they aren't thinking of the seed, they're thinking of those long ears of white or sweet yellow corn and they're thinking of summer day, rolling it in some butter and sprinkling some salt and chewing down on that delicious, crunchy, sweet corn. And they want some watermelons. And they think of the juice and the red and spitting your seed at your brother. We think of gardening and we think of 
harvest. And I think the second basic principle to guaranteed parenting is that you plan your harvest before you plant your seed. When you, when you look at that newborn baby and you have all those emotions surging through you as a father or as a mother about this new child, it's easy to forget that principle. And you just start giving whatever comes along to them and you don't think anything about it and you hope that someday you're going to have the fruits in their life that you wish them to have. In Nine Testimony, page 221 and page 222, it says, there are great laws that govern the world of nature and spiritual things are controlled by principles equally certain. The means for an end must be employed if the desired results are to be attained. So you notice there, she's saying here that spiritual outcomes are just as certain as natural outcomes. If you plant your seed and you deal with them right, you are going to have a predictable harvest. And if you deal with spiritual things, it's going to be the same way. You know, when we think about about uh, the harvest, I think if there's one thing that I hear about because I'm white and male, and so many problems in our society are caused by men being insensitive, uncaring, we don't have those emotional attributes tuned up. And you hear this all the time. And I start asking myself, are men incapable of feeling? Are men not sensitive? I don't think so. You know, when a, when a little boy is growing up, he naturally tends to things like, you know, the cowboys and Indians, right? And he has his little toy gun and he's out there. He's planting a seed. You're planting a seed. And I can promise you that looking at some other person as something to kill, even in fun and even in play, when that seed comes to bear fruit, what kind of fruit is this young man going to be having? It's certainly not going to be sensitivity to the feelings of others, and it's certainly not going to be caring and sympathy. When this little boy goes out with his football and he starts looking at everybody else on the field as his opponent and he's going to win and they have to lose, when he marries, and I can promise you, and most of you are married, sometimes, very, very rarely, you know, but once in a while, your spouse is your adversary, your opponent and you're having an argument. I'm sorry. <laughs> but it does happen. We're human. And the man just doesn't seem to get it, and he doesn't care. And I would like to suggest that there's a reason why that harvest is beginning to show. And I would like to suggest that that reason is, is that years and years before, the seeds that were sown 
were not sown because of the harvest that they wanted to get as parents. And I, I certainly wish that I had my parenting to do over again. The, the, um, the interesting thing is, is that in the greenhouse business, we have, um, we sow 15,000 <clears throat> 15, tomato seeds to the acre. And the seed companies charge anywhere from about 50 cents a seed to a dollar a seed. Why would, why would some gardener like me be willing to pay that kind of money to buy a seed when you can go down and pick any tomato, cut it open, and pull the seeds out? It's only a 15-minute job. The reason is that the breeders of those seeds can promise me what the outcome is going to be. And you know, they have some of these, we'll spend hours with the seed companies discussing these things that we're looking for, such as how fat the green parts on the tomato are, you know, that little calyx that sits on top of the nice red tomato, and uh, how long the stem is that goes between the vine and the fruit, and um, how uniformly the cluster ripens, and uh, how tall the plant is. All these things don't seem like they're very important at all, but when you suddenly start harvesting those fruits and you start having problems because the stem kinked and it made the tomato smaller, the harvest, after harvest, the little green calyx on top dries out too quickly and it isn't pretty on the shelf. Those are things that suddenly become important. And so before we even plant the seed, we start discussing these attributes with the breeder. This is what we want. Now, the third principle so the first one is, your children are gardens. The second one is, you plan your harvest before you sow your seed. And the third one is, every thought and every feeling is a seed. And every seed produces fruit just like itself. Every thought and every feeling is a seed. So every thought you have today, when that seed produces fruit, you're going to have a lot more of those same kind of thoughts and those same kind of feelings down the road. In Luke 8, verse 11 and 12, it says, This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts. This, um, this parable is interesting. How is the Word of God in your heart? There's only one way that I know of that the Word can be in your heart, and that is thoughts and feelings. So when it says that the seed is the Word of God, Jesus is actually saying the seed is thoughts about the Word of God because that's the only thing that goes to your head. Matthew 13, verse 24 to 26. It says, Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed the good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared 
notice the weeds didn't appear right away. The um, parable of, that Jesus told here is one that we're very familiar with. And we always think of this parable in terms of, well, you know what, the wicked are going to be in the church clear to the end of time. And that's true. But I think we missed the point that Jesus wanted us to get and why he told us. It wasn't that, hey, you've got to accept the fact that there's bad people going to be there. If you think about it, Jesus told this parable immediately after he told the parable that, that uh, Janice just read before about the sower and the field. So the symbolism should be the same. The reason that Jesus said that that represented the wicked is because God also says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. If you're wicked, it's because you've got wicked thoughts. And if you're a son of the kingdom, it's because you have accepted the word of God as the ruling standard of your life. So Jesus is really talking about the thoughts and feelings that are going through these people's minds, not so much who they actually are as individuals. And Jesus is saying here that here's a field and the gardener came and he sowed the good field and then what did he do? He left the field alone, unguarded, untended and provided an opportunity for an enemy to sow tares, weeds. And I think if you look at other parables Jesus told, I think the message that he really wanted us to focus on is to watch and to guard the field that we are in charge of so that we will reduce the chance that the enemy has to get in there and sow seeds that are unfavorable. In thinking about that principle, everything you see, and more specifically, everything your child sees, everything your child reads, everything they hear, and everything they do, create thoughts and feelings. And those thoughts and feelings are seeds. Every second during a day is a thought or a feeling going through your head. That means there's 3,600 seeds an hour going into your child's head. They may not be things that you even are paying attention to, but you're walking down the road, there's a billboard there, there's a car driving by, there's, an, there's a sound, there's, there's something happening that's creating a thought or a feeling in your child's mind. And as a parent, if you want to, if you want to have a fruitful garden, you have to be planning what harvest you want before you plant the seed. So you have to be thinking about what you want your children to see, what you want your children to read, what you want your children to hear, before they actually get exposed to it. 
So how do we apply that? Well, when we found out that I was pregnant, if you remember, that was a long time ago, we were living in Southern California. And basically, I mean, for all intents and purposes, it was in Los Angeles, but it wasn't because Ontario is a suburb of that. That was when we made our first critical decision of our parenting. We deliberately left the city of Southern California and accepted a job way up north in the middle of nowhere in northern British Columbia. And my husband took a job starting and operating a vegetable greenhouse. There's a statement in Adventist Home, which is really powerful. It's on page 137. That's Adventist Home 137, paragraph 1. And it says, parents who denounce the Canaanites for offering their children to Moloch, what are you doing? Why, you are making a more costly offering to your mammon god. And then, when your children grow up unloved and unlovely in character, when they show decided impiety and a tendency to infidelity, why, then you blame the faith you profess because it was unable to save them. You are reaping that which you have sown, the result of your selfish love of the world and neglect of the means of grace. You moved your families into places of temptation, and the ark of God, your glory and defense, you did not consider essential. And the Lord has not worked a miracle to deliver your children from temptation. You know, there's a... There's a lot of things that when you walk down the street you can see. And um, you see these kids running around, young people I should say, uh, looking pretty funny, some of them. Now I don't want to think, you know, whenever I look at pictures of when I was a teenager, I look pretty funny too. So styles always change and I understand that. But I would like to, I'd like to say that what your children look at is what they will look like in the future. What they look at is what they will look like. When, when uh, if you want your kids to watch VeggieTales and you see these people acting silly, what are they going to look like in a while? Silly. They're going to just be thinking of life in terms of fun. And, uh, and foolishness. So what you, uh, that's, that's something that as parents I think we have to be thinking about. What do we want our children to look like? What is the essential characters, graces? And of course it's not just about avoiding what's bad. What we really want is our children to be producing good fruit. And what's the best way of doing that? I think so often as parents, as people, we look at life from our perspective. What is it that, that we need to do to advance our career or whatever it might be instead of thinking in terms of our children? In Adventist Home, page 139, paragraph 1, it says, Let it be your study to select and make your homes as far from Sodom and Gomorrah as you can. Keep out of the large cities. If possible, 
make your homes in the quiet retirement of the country. And this is a really interesting part. It says, make your homes in the quiet retirement of the country, even if you never become wealthy by so doing, but locate where there is the best influence. Parents can secure small homes in the country with land for cultivation, where they can have orchards and where they can raise vegetables and small fruits to take the place of flesh meat, which is so corrupting to the lifeblood coursing through veins. On such places, the children will not be surrounded with the corrupting influences of city life. God will help his people to find such homes outside of the city. That's in Adventist Home, page 139. Uh, paragraph 6. And then in Adventist Home 138, paragraph 2, it says, Better sacrifice any and every worldly consideration than to imperil the precious souls committed to your care. And honestly, it's not easy to live in the country. You know, the mud comes in the house, you get your car all clean, and then it rains and you're going to go somewhere, and, and the mud from the gravel roads gets into the car, and it, it's it's not as convenient. People live in cities because it's convenient. But it says to better sacrifice those worldly considerations than to imperil those precious souls that are committed to us. There's a... Living in the country is, is kind of like a good, good place to, to start when you think about providing good influences, good seeds for your children. But um, it's, certainly not, it's certainly not alone. You don't want just to have a weed-free garden. No gardener is ever content just to get rid of the weeds, the bad things that, that come into, into the garden. Can you imagine taking, or your friend taking you out and showing you his garden and there's absolutely nothing but bare ground there? And he's proud of it because there's no weeds. He's eliminated all the bad things. My kids don't listen to bad music. They don't wear makeup. They don't wear jewelry. They don't watch TV. Those are the weeds. But that's not the purpose of gardening. The purpose of gardening is to get good fruit. And how do you develop good fruit? You know, the difference between a weed and a good seed is nothing more and nothing less than one is useful and the other is not. That's the difference. You see, if you want to have a productive garden, you want your children to be trained to be useful. And there's no better way of training your children to be useful than to get them employed, doing useful things. In uh, Fundamentals of Christian Education, page 322, there's a, a very, I think, amazingly simple and profound statement. And it says, the hope of advancing the cause of God in this country is in creating a new moral taste in love of work which will transform mind and character. And I want to read that again to you because 
as people, we think that for young people, what we need to do is just really get them to be spiritual and talk to them, and, and, and then we need to do some entertaining things with them because that's what's going to keep them keyed into the gospel. But listen to it again. Fundamentals of Education, page 322. The hope of advancing the cause of God in this country is in creating a new moral taste in love of work. That will transform mind and character. It's pretty amazing. Work transforms mind and character. Actually, it said love of work. Love of work. That, that's love the key. Work. Your kids, we but have to love work. I was listening to 3ABN one time, and uh, there was a doctor there that you probably have all seen who does a stop smoking seminar. And he said something that I started to argue with him about, but then I lost the argument. So he says that we don't eat what we like. What do we do? We like what we eat. You like what you do. You don't do what you like. It's the same principle. If you are always doing entertainment-type stuff, if you're always just doing fun things, that's stimulating things, exciting things, that's how you're training your taste, that's what you like, and that's what your children will love, if that's what you give them. On the other hand, if they do work, and mom and dad are with them, not just saying, go out there and mow the weed, pull out the weeds and mow the grass and whatever else. No. Mom and dad have to be with them. And if that's what they do, that's what they will end up developing a taste for, and that is what they will end up loving. And the love of work will transform mind and character. Amazing. In fact, it goes further than that, and it says, the hope of the cause of God in this country isn't in some of the more direct evangelism that we believe in, it's in creating a new moral taste in the young of love of work. You see, once your children have had the right seeds planted and those seeds are growing, By the laws of God and nature, effect follows cause with unvarying certainty. If you sow the right seeds and you are a caring parent who is nurturing it, effect will follow cause with unvarying certainty. You can be assured of the harvest if and only if you are assured of the seed you are planting. If you're letting your kids get any seed, any thought or feeling that happens to come to them, you have no idea what the outcome is going to be. It's just a hope and a prayer. But if, if your gardening is conscious and deliberate and you are thinking everything your children see, everything they do, everything they read, everything they hear, you remember that it's a seed. And it will produce more of the same. It's either a good seed or a weed seed. It's either useful or useless. And if you plant the right seeds, effect will follow cause with unvarying certainty. We can absolutely depend upon 
the principles, the laws that God has laid out for us. That statement that he just said is read in second volume of Mind, Character, and Personality, page 416, paragraph 3. That's two volume, Mind, Character, and Personality, 416, paragraph 3. And it goes on, it starts out by saying that by the laws of God in nature, effect follows, follows cause with unvarying certainty. The reaping testifies to the sowing. Here, no pretense is tolerated. Men may deceive their fellow men and may receive praise and compensation for the service which they have not rendered. But in nature, there can be no deception. On the unfaithful gardener, the harvest passes sentence of condemnation. And in the highest sense, this is true also in the spiritual realm. One text I'd like to read in, past, in uh, closing, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7, 10, and 11, says, Endure hardness as discipline. What is discipline? Hardness, hardship. You see, as parents, when I look at my little baby, and I had that wonderful experience with four, when I look at my little baby laying there, it is as instinctive and natural for a father to want to protect his child as it is to breathe. And unfortunately, because we were born with the wrong natures, we want to protect them from hardship. But it says, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. Now notice this. No discipline. Now what was discipline? It was hardship. No hardship seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness. We have to reorient our values and our priorities as parents. We have to see that Hardship is the discipline that will produce a harvest of righteousness. And as each, as each one of us, in our own way, parents, children, whether it's our own, our grandchildren, or just even influence those that we come in contact with, remember these three points. Children are gardens. You plan your harvest before you plant your seed, and every thought and every feeling is a seed, and it will produce a harvest just like it was. Let's pray. Father God, this morning we are so thankful that you have given us your word and that your word has such powerful promises and such simple illustrations for us to relate to. I pray that you will bless us on this Sabbath day and bless us each so that we may be found faithful to be with you in heaven one day. In your name, in your holy name, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI. Adventist Layman's Services and Industries.
If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.